Amen, amen. Thank you all. Thank you, band. Thank you for that awesome uh, intro music. I felt a little boogie going on there. We are so glad that you were here. It is Palm Sunday. That is an excellent day to celebrate. We, of course, celebrate. Am I on? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, okay, good. Where we celebrate the awesome experience of Jesus walking into, marching into, riding into the city of Jerusalem, the week that changed all of our lives. Not only our lives, it changed all of our eternities. Not only our eternities, but the history of the world itself happened in this week. And that's why we celebrate Palm Sunday. It's all good. Or is it? (laughs) There were, of course, there was that incredible experience of Jesus marching in, walking in, riding into the city. And just like we read about in the Bible, the poor laying down of palm branches, even throwing down their cloaks for Jesus to walk into, shouting Hosanna, praising his name, expectantly waiting what would happen as he entered that awesome, huge city. But there were also these other events that happened on that same day that we don't quite understand and we tend to kind of gloss right over. Let me get you in the story a little bit here. How many of you ever taken one of those heart stress tests, you know, where they, they strap on all kind of stickers onto your body, then they put you on a treadmill or a Stairmaster, and they, they see if your heart explodes, and I guess if it doesn't explode or leak, then I guess your heart is healthy. I, I don't know what the other option is, but, but maybe you've done one of those. When we were missionaries, they did something a little less invasive, less painful. They would, they would every once in a while, every couple of years, have us fill out this survey, this stress survey to see how much stress we had in our life. It would be a a survey of 100 questions, and every time we answered yes, it was a point. The idea, though, was not to have a lot of points, and it was questions like, have you, has your family grown recently? Have you had a baby in the family? Have you moved recently? Have you started a new job or a new ministry? And each one of those was a point in this stress level. Maybe, maybe up to 50 was, was healthy enough. Beyond 50 was scary. You get up to 70 or 80, it was really scary. Of course, for the missionaries, they had other questions like, have you been kidnapped in the last six months? And when you were kidnapped, was it by gunpoint or by knife point? And how long, if you were held longer than 10 days? So, so missionary surveys were a little bit different than normal ones. But, but I remember there were times in my life, back when Chrissy was born, our son, and we just started a new church, moved to a new country, a new culture. Everything was new. Everything was different. Everything was stressful. I mean, I was, I was getting up into the 90s at that point. And not only did I think my heart would explode, I thought my, my head would explode. That was high stress. I wonder... I wonder if we had had the chance to run Jesus through this same stress survey during this week, this Passion Week, this week of suffering, the Easter week as he's entering into the kingdom, into the city of Jerusalem, if it wouldn't have been something similar. I mean, no one would have blamed the guy. He's walking in there with the weight of the world on his shoulder, the expectations of his own followers and of his enemies on his shoulders. What would happen next? Every word was important. Every action was important. For three years, he had done nothing but give and serve and do and and perform and and hand out and, and be there for others. He was running on fumes by this point. And then, of course, there was a week to come. He knew what the others didn't know. He knew of the abandonment. He knew of the shame. He knew of the beating, of the torture. Uh, 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 of, the, of, the, of the slapping of his face. And then after all that was over, they were going to kill him. 
in a painful, torturous, long and suffering and public way for all to see. No one would have blamed them. And there were these three stories that happened that we kind of gloss over. Three events, three episodes. At best, they would be described as, at best, they would be described as outbursts. At worst, sinful. Did I pique your interest? Let me read the stories for you. Then we're going to dig into them and find out that's what really happened. Uh, open your Bible, the book of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, is probably going to appear on the screen. You, if you have your phone, you can aim it at that little QR code. You'll pull up not only the sermon text, but also sermon notes. You can follow along and take notes along the way. Just to answer your question, no, it was not sinful. <laughs> over and over and over again in the New Testament, we read that Jesus was without sin. He never sinned. Even in the Old Testament, the prophecies about the coming Son of God, the Messiah, he would be without sin. So just to answer your question real quick before you get up and leave, what in the world is this pastor saying? No, that was not the answer. So it must be something else. Let's discover together what it was. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It's a bit long text, so we, longer text than we normally read, so stick with me as I go through it. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. One, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt, you know, like a little baby donkey, baby, baby horse, a colt tied there, which no one has ever written, untie it and bring it here. Interesting. If anyone asks you, what are you doing, say, the Lord needs it, and they'll send it back with you here, and he'll send it back here shortly. Then they went and found the colt outside the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, sure enough, some people standing there asked, what are you doing? Why are you untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, but the people let him go. Verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches, kind of like these, uh, that they had cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed, they all shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but... Since it was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the 12. Here we go. Verse 12, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if there was any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Again, I say to you, this is Palm Sunday. We celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem that would, that would start this incredible Easter week. All that he taught, all that he gave, even his death on the cross that led to the resurrection Sunday that changed the course of history for us and for all the world. But we cannot gloss over these stories. These don't seem to fit into the life of Jesus. These don't seem very Jesus-y. 
It looks a lot more like what I would do and what you would do. Was Jesus just demonstrating not only his God side, which was to show up big in just a few days? Was Jesus showing his human side? Is that all that's going on here? Let's dig in a little bit and find out because I believe it's way deeper than that. I believe up until the very last moment, his very last day with us here on earth, Jesus is giving. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is using every opportunity he has to teach his guys, the disciples, and therefore us as well, 2,000 years later, important lessons for how we are to live together, how we are to live as believers and followers in Christ. If we are to help God usher in the kingdom of God, we must do things his way, even when it doesn't seem to fit our pattern of who Jesus is. Let's, let's look at verses 1, 2, and 3 one more time and answers the question. Jesus, I think with these three experiences, he's asking us three different questions. The first question is this. Who is the Lord of your stuff? Who is the Lord of your stuff? Verse 1 says it this way. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethany, Bethphage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there which no one's ever ridden. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, say, The Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. So what is going on here? From my point of view, Jesus is inciting his followers to steal a donkey. As far as reading this, if we only had the text, if we only had the story, I wasn't there. I didn't hear what happened before. I didn't hear kind of the intonation in their voices. I didn't see the eye movements between the guys. If we just have the words here, Jesus is telling the guys, listen, there's going to be a, I, 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 I'm sure it's there. It's always there. No one's watching. I want you to go there and untie it. If you get caught... Here's what you say. Let's see if that works. That kind of seems, is that what's going on? Did Jesus steal this? Uh, wait, we said, well, no, no, Pastor. It says, but, but Jesus will send it back here shortly. Oh, he's only borrowing the donkey. Uh, then that makes it okay, right? I, I, I can't get away with it. You can't get away. Is that what's happening? I mean, it's like, like you're sitting at your dinner table with your family. You're, you're having dinner. All of a sudden, you hear the revving of the engine of your brand new red Corvette parked in the garage. You leap up from the table. You run out to the garage just in time to see this guy pulling out of the garage with your red Corvette. You say, what are you doing? His answer, the Lord needs it. <laughs> are you buying that? Do they buy that in Connecticut? They don't buy that in Miami. They have a different answer, which we won't go into because we're in church. But in a sense, that's what's, is that what's happening? And of course, no one would blame Jesus. Yes, he was fully God. The Bible says that. He was also fully human. The Bible says that. No one would blame him after three years, the stress that was going on. Was he just at his wits end? Had he had, he had it up to here with, with people? And, and now he's making some, some, some poor choices like, like you and I. We put that on Jesus. But I don't think that is at all what is happening. I think the whole key is in that phrase, the Lord needs it. That seems to be in the story some kind of magic formula. As soon as the guys say that, everything changes and the, the owner, we don't know if they were the owners of the donkey or the, the neighbors of the owner, whoever, they were the ones that were kind of in authority over the donkey. As soon as the guy said these magic words, the Lord needs it, everything changed. So what do those words mean? Well, that word Lord is important. We read it over and over and over again in the New Testament. In, in, the, in the Greek, it means either master it means owner, owner of things. It also means the king. But more than anything, especially at this time, it meant the Messiah. Now here's the deal. 
Jesus had been teaching, had been doing miracles, had been, had been leading his people for three years with the culmination of him marching into, riding into Jerusalem. Every eye was on Jesus. Every head was thinking the same thing. Could this be it? The long-awaited Messiah. This had been his nickname for some time now. The city of Jerusalem was all abuzz about this, this coming, wandering preacher. Could he be the one? They're already calling him the one. They're already calling him the Lord, meaning the Messiah. Folks over 50, if I told you the king has left the building, who am I talking about? Elvis Presley, that's right. We know who people are by their nicknames. This guy, these guys knew, when they said the Lord needs it, they jumped back and said, well, if Jesus needs it, if the Messiah needs it, he can have it. But it also said need, and that word need is also important. We need to dig into God. I don't want any of us to misunderstand that in some way, God, Jesus, is ever in need. That there's some kind of deficiency that we as humans can help him out with. He's in a pinch, and if we just do a little bit, then, then everything's going to work out because he really needs us. There's a word for that in Greek. This is not that word. In fact, this word means um, this is the perfect occasion for, this is the perfect opportunity for something. So what is God saying? Jesus is saying, I have a plan. I'm about to walk in, march into the city. If I were to march in on a horse as a, a gallant steed like a warrior, I would be seen as the warrior king who's coming to chop off the heads of the Romans. That's not at all what I want to put out here because that's not the kind of Messiah I am. I'm the servant, serving Messiah. So I'm going to come in on purpose on a cult just as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. This cult fits perfectly in my plan. That's why I need it. This is what God is saying to us. It fits perfectly, whether it's a cult, whether it's a teenager helping out with the, with the announcement, whether it's a, a gift that you have, a talent that you have, a skill that you have, whether it's an extra hour in your week. God is saying that hour, that skill, that talent, that young person, that, that senior adult is perfect. That's exactly what I need for this ministry. For this, for this visit to that homebound person, for this encouragement for that young couple. That's exactly what I need. The problem is we hold the things that we value very close to our chest. The things that we think are important, the things that have great value to us, we're holding them very close to our chest. In a sense, we are saying to God, no, 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 no. I am the Lord of my stuff. I decide who needs it and who gets it. I'm holding on to everything I've got. Folks, until we, until we pry our hands away from our chest and our stuff and we begin living with open hands as clearly these guys, these, these guardians of the cult did, as, they, as soon as they heard the Messiah needs this, that would fit perfectly my plan. Their only response was take it. It's exactly what Jesus wants from us. We must understand that we are not the sole Lord of our stuff. It will all fade away with us if we hold it on till our dying days. We are still talking about this cult 2,000 years later because its owner said, if the Lord needs it, take it. I'll give you an example. 
This week we had a, a, a seminar, actually we did it a couple of times, called the, the, the Legacy Financial Seminar. It's talking about uh, investing in the kingdom of God here and, and after we go to be with Jesus. In fact, uh, about an hour before the first night, uh, Cheryl Alexander, one of our, our members, she had attended the seminar a couple of years ago. The last time we did it was before COVID. She said, Pastor, I can't be there. I'm up visiting family in Indiana. He said, but would you share this testimony? Now, she didn't know I was going to share it on Sunday, so hi, Cheryl. <laughs> I hope this okay. She said, share this testimony with the class. I really want them to know. She said, when I heard that, it was very interesting. I I took it to heart. I prayed about it, thought about it. Sometime later, I called Mike. Mike was one of the brothers that came from the Florida Baptist Foundation. And and we started working together on on my personal finances. I was able, Pastor, I was able to, to funnel more funds to the building of God's kingdom away from taxes and other things that she would normally do than she's ever been able to do before in her life. This year, she said, Pastor, just this week, I received my tax refund. I have not gotten money back from the government in as long as I can remember. And that all started with trusting God with that first step. In fact, let me me give you a picture. About 50% of us Americans have a will. About 50, that's roughly 45, 50% of us have a will. The other 50%, in a sense, they're saying, you know what? I believe at some level, I believe the government or, or the, the, the court system, they can decide better than I can where my money should go, where my funds should go, where my house should go, where my resources should go after I die. Otherwise, they'd, they'd have their own will. Because here's the deal. We are about to step into the greatest transfer of wealth this world has ever seen. The, the, the baby boomer generation is, is heading on to eternity, and they are transferring that wealth. You say, why would they transfer it? They've, they've got it. Why would they give it away? Well, they're not giving it away. You remember John Rockefeller, when he passed away, he was the wealthiest man in the world. Someone asked his personal accountant, how much did he leave? The answer was, all of it. <laughs> so this trend, in fact, I, th- I think we have the number up there somewhere. Look at, look at, look at this number. That's how much money will be transferred from, from that generation to the next. You know how much $41 trillion is? Of course. Yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy thinks a lot. I, I don't think we in our human brains could even compute that. Let me, let me help you with this. The next slide says it real simply. If I was to give Jimmy $10 million today, and every single day, he would have to give away $10 million every day for how long? For 11,000 years. That's how much $41 trillion is. That's what it looks like. Folks, if, if we as believers, as we as, as followers of Christ could catch a vision for funneling even a portion of that money into the building of the kingdom of God, if we could learn to live with our hands wide open instead of holding our stuff close to our chest, can you imagine what God would do with that investment? Forget, forget all of Christendom. What if we as a church were to begin doing that? If we were to hold our stuff loosely and our hands wide open, and as God led us to, to invest our gifts and our skills and our our time, our, our abilities, yes, even our resources, what God could do with that. Let me, let me give you just, just a little spark of something we believe God's doing in our future. 
you, you know that on Tuesday afternoons, Matt and I or Chuck and I, we, we go visiting. Folks that visit us for the first time, if they share their address with us, we go and visit them in their home. Actually, we don't go into their home. We call it a front porch visit. We stand outside. Uh, we even did it during COVID. Uh, and, and we just say, thank you for coming. We brought you a simple gift. Uh, uh, Dixie and Glenda and Al make these handmade, beautiful gifts. We bring those and just say, hey, thanks for coming. We'd love to pray for you. And that's it. Well, we've noticed these last few weeks, especially, almost all of the visits are up in the northwest section of Cape Coral. That's where folks are moving. That's where folks are building. That's where the real growth in Cape Coral is coming. We have a vision. One day, we believe that there needs to be a church, a a, a campus of our church, a, a, a mission of our church, a part of our church in northwest Cape Coral. I was talking to a, a friend, a, pastor, a couple of pastor friends of mine uh, about that. I said, hey, what do, you, what do y'all think about Northwest Cape? Y'all thinking about starting anything up there? This is, this is the exact answer. I'm not going to say his name. He said, no, we're not going to do that. There's no money up there. I took a step back because I was sure it was coming. <laughs> I, I've been a church planner a long time. I read all the books on church planning. I've never anywhere seen where you, you plant a church based on money. You plant a church based, based on lost souls. God wants, to, God wants to reach that part. Oh, there might not be enough money there to plant a church, but, but the money to plant that church might be in these pockets for now and not yet in those pockets. Maybe, maybe one day the money for the, for the next, next church plant will be in those pockets. To plant. I, I don't know what God's plans are. That's not my job. My plan is to follow his leading. So, so this is all about who lords, who rules over your stuff. Is it you or is it God? Second uh, strange encounter happened in verse 12. Jump to verse 12. So the next day, they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. No big surprise. Early in the morning, long travel, big day ahead of him. There was no, there was no free breakfast at the Airbnb he was staying at, so he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say that. So what is going on here? You know, it's one thing to incite your buddies to steal a horse. Now you're, you're cursing innocent trees to death? Does that sound like Jesus at all? Again, I get it. He was stressed. He was, he was entering into a, a really stressful week of his life, and he needed a little energy. And if you've ever been hangry, you know how difficult that is. Jesus, was he just hangry? It appears he was disappointed. He was disappointed. He expected one thing, got another. Add to that the fact that he was physically hungry, and boom, you got a bad case of the hangries. Is that what's going on here? Well, let's look at this idea of the Bible says it wasn't the season for figs. It wasn't the tree's fault. Why blame the tree? Certainly why curse the tree? The Bible says clearly it wasn't the season for figs. Let's talk about that. I don't know if you have a fig tree in your, in your yard here. Figs do grow in Florida. We had them in the Caribbean where we live. We had them uh, in, in Spain. In fact, our neighbor was a fig farmer. Yes, that's a thing. And he brought us free figs all the time from his free fig farm. So we had, we had plenty of figs. We know figs. 
In Israel, the season for figs is from June of the year all the way till the first frost. So November, December-ish, whatever. So if the Bible says this was not the season for figs in Israel where Jesus was, then it must have been somewhere between January and Mayish. Roughly in that time. It was not the season. For, in fact, during that time, I think we have some pictures. Yeah, so, so during those months, figs are one of those unusual trees. When they're not in season, when they're not bearing fruit, they actually lose all of their leaves. They look, well, they look kind of dead. They're not dead at all. They're just storing up energy, getting ready to burst forth with leaves there. That's what it looks like. So, so this is what Jesus would have seen. He would have seen a fig tree full of leaves. The, why is that important? The leaves only came when they were in season. The leaves only came when there was fruit on the tree. That's what he would have expected. In fact, there's one more picture. Good. So that's what he would have expected. When he pulled the leaves apart, he would have grabbed some of those figs. They stuck them in his little pocket, eaten a few then and a few on the way. If he had only seen that first picture of a bunch of fig trees without any leaves, he wouldn't have thought a thing about it because it was still, I don't know, April or Mayish, whatever. It wasn't yet the season. He had no reason to expect that tree to have figs because uh, normally it was not the season and they would have been all without leaves. He would have kept going until he got to the Wawa and had one of their awesome breakfast burritos. But that wasn't the case. He sees the leaves, so he stops. He looks for the figs. There's no figs. That was the problem. It was... Well, in Spanish, we would say un falso, a fake. Teenager would say it was a poser. We would say it was false advertising. It was putting something out there that it couldn't back up with its reality. It had, it had put on leaves so that everyone would think, oh, it's alive. Oh, look at that. All those leaves. It must be a fruit-bearing tree. Oh, look at all those leaves. It must be healthy. You look deeper under those leaves, and there's no fruit. Folks, whether we're talking about a tree whether we're talking about a Jewish temple in the year 33, whether we're talking about a church in Cape Coral, whether we're talking about a family or believer, if there, is, if there are leaves but no fruit, it will die. Just don't, 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 get, don't get all keyed up in this cursing of Jesus. He was, it was not as much a curse as it was Jesus speaking truth over the tree. He's saying, if there, is, if there are leaves and there's no fruit, this tree is dead and it will wither. And sure enough, within 24 hours, his prophecy over that, his speaking of truth over that tree came visually true. And we're not reading it in the Bible, but, but it comes up later in the chapter. The guys come back and say, look, Jesus, that tree you spoke over, sure enough, is dead and withered. And Jesus said, well, I told you so. Any tree that's green, the problem wasn't that it had leaves. The problem was that it was putting out leaves without bearing fruit. That's always a problem for Jesus. What does that say for you and for me? In John chapter 15, Jesus himself said, verse 2, I, I, I command you to bear fruit. Verse uh, 8 says, I command you to bear much fruit. Chapter 15, verse 16 says, I command you to bear fruit that will last this is what matters. We're not called to be pretty. We're not called to be flowery. We're not called to be leafy. We're not called to look like Christians. We are called to bear fruit like Christians. This is internal fruit. Help me here a little bit. I don't know if the online crowd will hear you answer me, but if I were to say, what are the fruit of the Spirit, you would answer? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, 
Self-control, that's the hard one. No one ever wants to say self-control. That's why we leave it to the end, right? Those are the, so that's, there's these internal fruit of the Spirit. That is the fruit that we are bearing, but there's also the external fruit of the Spirit. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Yesterday at our, um, at our uh, spring fling, there were tons of volunteers. Just like Pastor Chuck said, you, you don't want to miss the next opportunity to volunteer. It, it is so awesome to have that opportunity to volunteer. But there was a group of people that came only, not, not only to love on the kids and be sweet to the, the visitors, but specifically to reach out to those who were new. I watched them. I knew what they were doing. I do the same thing. I, I knew all their tricks. They'd smile. They sit down, they bring a bottle of water, they'd listen really, really well. They were, they were using their gifts, they were building the kingdom, they were pouring into that which, they weren't just flowery, leafy plants, there was fruit being brought and fruit being grown. But then there's one more, there's one more of these difficult outbursts from Jesus, we got to look at, look at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Again, what is going on here? It's one thing to, 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 to speak truth over a tree and it withers in your face. It's another thing to steal an animal. But now he's, now he's assaulting humans. Not just humans. These are insiders. These are his people. People that are in his church, temple. This is clearly the stress has overwhelmed him. The three years, the, the stress of what is about to come in that week. Maybe, maybe he was just looking for just one hour of peace and quiet with his heavenly father before this crazy, hard, unexplainable week was about to begin and he wasn't going to get it. Maybe, maybe he was just so angry about how they had disrespected his father and disrespected his father's house. Is that what's happening here? Is it, is it just simply a, a righteous indignation, a, a contempt for those who are cheating the faithful? Even if it is that, that seems like an overkill for Jesus. There must be something deeper going on here. You're exactly right. I believe the phrase that helps us understand what's going on here is in this. Jesus said, is it not written that my house will be what? A house of prayer for whom? For the nations, for all. This incredibly important, I believe this one phrase gives us a clear picture of why Jesus reacted the way that he did. It wasn't because they were loud. It wasn't because they were noisy. It wasn't because they were disrespecting God's house. It was because they were taking that which was set aside, prepared for a very special purpose, and they were filling it up with all kinds of junk and not allowing it to be used for that purpose. The temple was built for, 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 for Jews the Jewish nation, the Jewish people to relate to their God. The very most innermost part was that place where God resided and, 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 and the leaders, the, 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 the priests, they would have been allowed in that part. A little bit further out from that would have been all of the Jewish men. They would have been allowed that close to the presence of God. Beyond that would have been Jewish women and children. They would have been allowed up to that place. Beyond all of that, in fact, outside in the courtyard, and it was a huge courtyard. This was the largest building on earth at, time, at that time. In this courtyard area, that was the area for 
the nations, the, the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Pretty much everyone that's not a Jew, right? So this is for everyone else. So, so we got the priests on the inside, then we got the Jewish men, then we got Jewish women and children. And then out there, that's your spot. God had set it up that way because he knew the only way the nations were going to get to know him is if they had a safe place to come to and hear and discuss, get their questions answered, give a little pushback and get a little pushback to dig into God's word, to hear truth being taught. That was the only opportunity, and it was ruined. It was filled with this crazy, loud bazaar of animals and selling and money and all this stuff. I think that's what made Jesus the maddest. He hated it when when people that were still far away from God didn't have the opportunity to know God. It made him even angrier when the only reason they didn't have an opportunity to get to know God was why? For the convenience of the insiders. Oh, it had to be convenient for them. They traveled for days to get to the temple, and they knew they were coming to the temple to to pull off all of their tradition. They had to do this sacrifice and that sacrifice and say this prayer and this prayer and read this passage of of the Old Testament and that passage. They had to check off all the boxes. They had just traveled for days. The last thing they were able to do was to bring some unblemished goat or unblemished sheep or, God forbid, an unblemished bull for three days travel. Do you know how much work that would be and how much expense that would have been, it was far more convenient for them to show up footloose and fancy free with a big wad of cash in their pocket. And as they're walking into the temple, very conveniently for them, right there in the temple course, before they entered, plop down that hunk of cash and pick up their dove, pick up their little goat, pick up their little sheep, or pick up their big bull and head in for the sacrifice. Oh, how convenient for them. Gentiles be damned. Don't mess with my traditions. Don't mess with my comfort. Don't mess with my ease. We've been working on this church for generations. We finally got it just the way we like it. We got the seats where we want them. We got the temperature how we want it. We got the songs like we want it. We got the sermon length down to what we're comfortable with. We got it just the way we like it. Don't you think you're going to come in here and change what we got going? This is our house, not yours. Beat it. Does that make you mad? It ticked off Jesus. We see it in the Bible. I don't blame him. I actually think he was showing constraint. Folks, on that same week, a couple days later, Jesus was hanging on the cross. As he's hanging there and as he's dying, something happened, not just on the cross, but in this temple that we're talking about. There was this veil, this curtain, super thick curtain that separated the, the place where only God was from where we humans could enter. God tore that veil in two. The Bible says from the top to the bottom, it ripped in two. There is no longer a divide, not only between us and God, but between those who do not yet know God and God. If this church, if this building, if this community of faith is ever a stumbling block, is ever putting things away, is ever more interested in our own convenience, our own traditions, our own comfort over that which they need or the folks that visited us yesterday on Saturday need, then then there is a major problem. I do not want to be here when Jesus shows up with his whip. It won't be pretty. 
God is calling us to clear out those things that prevent our not yet believing friends and neighbors from knowing him. Here's the questions. Who is the Lord of your stuff? Is there any fruit in your life or is it just leaves? And then here, this third question, are you comfortable? I believe Jesus was taking these last moments of his life to teach these incredibly deep and powerful lessons in the midst of all that he was going through. He didn't miss a beat. None of this surprised him. He was not overwhelmed. I I use those words uh, ironically. Of course he was not overwhelmed. Nothing overwhelmed Jesus. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he's talking to you, and he's talking to me. Are we listening? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of direct communication. You are a God that speaks truth, not only over trees, fig trees. You speak truth over us as well. Forgive us, Jesus, when we allow the, uh, the conveniences of this life, the, uh, the comforts of our, of our church programs to rule how we relate to you and even how we relate to others. Jesus, I pray that you would cause each of us, all of us who are here, here in person or online, to struggle with these three questions until we come to a resolution with you. Jesus, I know that you are here in our midst. I know that you were preaching through each of these experiences as loudly as you could. I just pray, God, that we would hear your words, hear your message, and begin living as you have called us to live. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.